you need to be interested and interesting, right? So when you're looking for someone maybe as a life partner or a business partner, uh, or maybe to be on a board of something charitable, you know, you've got to bring something different to the table. Let's get ready to scale. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. Thanks for joining us today. Today I have with me Garrett Bedrin. Garrett is the third generation real estate developer, sponsor, and operator with the Bedrin organization. He's also an owner and developer of Allied Suites, which some of you may recognize under the name of Salons by JC. Um, one of his passions is understanding the importance of maintaining and building generational wealth, which for obvious reason, being third generation, I can see how that's a passion. And prior to real estate investing, Garrett actually had a career in sports management. And a fun fact, he was the top season ticket sales executive with the NBA champion Golden State Warriors. Sweet. Welcome to the show, Garrett. <laughs> Thanks, Jeanette. It's great to see you. And uh, I think I'm ready to go to my hair salon for my uh, pre-show haircut. I think I forgot that. So I'm so sorry. Next time I'll freshen up. <laughs> I have to say, uh, I'm envious of your background and your access to, I'm assuming, fabulous stylist. Uh, yes. Very cool. You've just really put together an interesting uh, career path, it seems like. Absolutely. Look, you've got to diversify in anything you do in life, right? I'm very big on having multiple streams of revenue. Um, but I also think uh, you need to be interested and interesting, right? So when you're looking for someone maybe as a life partner or a business partner, uh, or maybe to be on a board of something charitable, you know, you've got to bring something different to the table. And I think it's great for people to have multiple interests, have diverse backgrounds. And um, uh, anytime you start in the sports industry, just real quick, you're going to start at the ground floor, whether it's sales marketing, um, and, and you're going to have to really grind. So I think that was a great opportunity for me to kind of, you know, learn a business outside of my family. And uh, I was fortunate. They were not the champions that they were when I was there. Uh, I think the Warriors hadn't made the playoffs in maybe 12 years. And when you have to make 80 calls a day trying to sell tickets to uh, a, a kind of a subpar product, that, that, that really taught me a lot <laughs> uh, about never giving up. And uh, one of my best friends, Brandon Schneider, uh, never gave up and he stayed 20 years and he's actually the president of the team and uh, I got to visit him in Boston for game six last year when the Warriors won and actually go to the uh, after party and meet the team and so you'll see a picture in my LinkedIn of me holding the trophy I think that's at 2 30 in the morning so that was a later later night than usual for me <laughs> <laughs> well very nice I have to ask uh, given your position during that time what is your favorite uh, swag item that you've been able to keep and add to kind of your souvenirs? Wow. Well, I mean, now, obviously, I've got I, I it's up in my background, but it's not right behind me. I mean, I've got the big panorama picture of game six and me holding the trophy and and that. Um, but I definitely have a bobblehead collection that I took back from uh, from the Warriors when I was out there as you know, those were certain gifts that were given out. Um, I think I held on to a bottle of wine with the logo in there and some autographs um, uh, as well. There's always different gifts for, for the staff and for season ticket holders. So it was, it was a long time ago. You know, I started my career as a ball boy, actually, for the New Jersey Nets that was in high school. And then in college, I did a semester with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So I lived in Florida in their spring training facility. Uh, 
and help with their marketing, actually helped uh, bring in people to throw out the first pitch and sing the national anthem. I learned the box office and uh, and then I moved to the Bay Area for, for those three years. So I've done a few things in sport um, and then transitioned to the family and, and full-time commercial real estate and, uh, and hair salon investing, which is an interesting one as well. It definitely is interesting. And actually, I'm glad you're, you know, moving in that direction because I was reading over the story of your family uh, this morning, and I thought it was really interesting. So, do you want to share with the listeners how it is, you know, that you came to be a multi generational family, um, you know, tied into real estate? That's that's perfect. I'm glad you asked because I just got back from a networking function where I ran into somebody who's also third generation, and his like step grandfather went to uh, Temple with my my grandparents as well and, and knew them same town. Um, so we're, we're really proud of our family and our heritage here. Uh, basically Murray Bedroom, my grandfather started the company in 1947 and he literally landed on the beaches of Normandy in World War II as a young man and, you know, fought for this country and came home thankfully um, with, with two purple hearts. Uh, but somebody gave him a chance and he started opening up what you'd call a small little gift store, Murray's gift gallery. And that kind of merged into, office supplies and things that you'd have on your desk at, at work. Um, and, it was, and it was a nice, nice little retail business. Um, very similar story to other entrepreneurs, you know, coming up in that era. And, uh, and then my uncle and my father joined the business in 1969 and 1972. And they were really the catalyst to grow. Uh, it was called allied office supplies. So they grew it to a whole other level, five or six retail stores in the, New Jersey Meadowlands area um, where the Giants and the Jets and the Nets were playing at the time. And there were a lot of companies moving out of New York City and it was just a high growth area and they all needed off supplies, but they also needed, you know, high end customer service, right? So who do you buy your coffee from, your printing supplies, your janitorial, your paper, your pens? Uh, this is before Staples and Office Depot. There was no Mr. Staples and Mr. Office Depot. Um, and so they, they dominated really the industry in that one area and had tremendous customers like M&M Mars and Johnson and Johnson and Merck and even the, the um, I think the uh, New York Fed was a, was a client. Um, and that was kind of the heyday was the mid 80s to the late 90s. And I, I was younger and so I didn't actually have an active role in that business, but always watched my, my father, my uncle and my cousin, Michael, who's my partner, he was in that business. And we always understood retail because that was an important part of the business. So when we sold that, it was a kind of a, obvious transition that we would then start looking at real estate that was supported by retail. You know, that was our background. We knew a lot of these retailers. Um, you know, we went to conferences with them. We, we worked with them as colleagues uh, in the industry. And I think you probably would be familiar with a lot of um, kind of historical stories where, you know, maybe someone ended up losing their business, but they owned the building that supported it. Now, we ended up selling the business. We didn't lose our business, but our real estate um, it was on Route 17 in, in the Meadowlands and Hasbrook Heights. That was very valuable and we repositioned it. So we took our, you know, office building and turned it into a retail building. We took an industrial warehouse and turned it into retail. There were a number of things we did on this one property that allowed us to refinance multiple times and really plant seeds into larger, you know, what you would call more neighborhood or institutionally owned shopping centers like a Publix anchored center or a TJ Maxx anchored center. Um, but it really came that initial equity and not a lot of money really launched from kind of ownership in putting together 
the buildings that supported the retail and distribution business. Uh, it's really interesting how, how that launched. So um, we've been doing that now for, I guess, the last 20 years. I'm starting to lose count on time. It's a fantastic strategy, uh, and it actually explains how we are, you know, arriving to the next portion of the conversation. So uh, just to clue the listeners in, Garrett and I were actually on a call yesterday, not related to the podcast whatsoever, but we started to have such an interesting conversation. I actually stopped him midway through and said, wait, 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 I need to get you on the podcast. We need to talk about this on the podcast. And being the trooper that Garrett is, uh, less than 24 hours later, we're picking up the conversation that we started yesterday. I know. So, and you wanted to record yesterday, but you weren't able to. So exactly. We, we get some of those nuggets in here today for you. Exactly. Exactly. So now I can understand exactly why you said to me yesterday that you were really starting to think about how to maximize your assets and your property because of where we're currently at in the market. So, you know, if we can rewind our conversation just a little bit, <laughs> everybody in, um, explain to me how it is that you're starting to look at, you know, your properties today as an owner and operator, and what are you doing differently? What lens are you looking through? Absolutely. Fantastic question. Um, a lot of investors look at buying real estate with a very specific strategy and a hold pattern, right? So when, when you and Ellie put together your, your projects, you know, you may say to your investors, look, we're going to buy it. And uh, within 24 months, we're going to renovate all the units and we're going to add, um, you know, $10,000 per unit of improvements. And that's going to increase the rents by $200 and $200 is at a five cap, you know, $2 million and whatever, we're going to force the appreciation and here's your return. It's 18%, it's 20%. Um, and when you're working with investors, there's, there's a kind of a, a real way that, that you position it and how you, and how you pitch it. Um, when we looked at real estate for the family, we, we took a different approach. We kind of looked at it like a meat counter, right? What's the price per pound? Um, and what else can happen here in the future that would give us the flexibility? So we bought a couple of retail assets that we felt, you know, were 80 bucks a square foot, 50 bucks a square foot, 60 bucks a square foot. And we felt that if we could hold them for 10 years, we could probably get our money out because, you know, we try to start at a point of a 10% cash on cash. Now, for some of the multifamily listeners that they may say, oh, my God, 10%. That's the biggest number I've ever heard in my life. That's not <laughs> typical for a multifamily asset, of course. Um, you'd be very lucky to get uh, half of that. Yeah, um, I'm a deal that said so today. <laughs> right, right. If, if I pitched you that deal, you'd say, Garrett, there's no way you can get 10%. So, um, but if you could buy a retail shopping center, maybe at a seven and a half or an eight cap, and if you were borrowing, you know, not right now, uh, maybe at four and a half to five and a half, you could get 10%. So we always felt like 10% from day one was kind of the threshold for the family. And if we were patient and we waited long enough, we could get our money out, which would allow us to take a little bit more risk and make some of those monumental changes. Um, so an example would be we own a property in Greensboro, North Carolina, and we bought it back in, I want to say April of either 07 or 08. And it's not the one you put on the cover of the brochure. You know, it's not so fancy. It's kind of what you call a B minus center. You know, but was a cap rate around around eight. And we knew that market was a growing area. We were interested in Charlotte, Raleigh, and then learned a lot more about Greensboro and Winston-Salem and High Point. And um, over the past 15 years of ownership, it's it's been a great property. We've never really had a down year. We've been anywhere from eight to 15% uh, cash on cash.
But what we've realized over time is that the parking lot's gotten a little bit further away from the road. The entrances are a little further away as well from the parking. If you're a mom with a double stroller, not really so mommy friendly. Um, but yet there's great new people coming in, high incomes, big jobs. And that new urban loop around the city, the uh, I think it's called the Interstate 840. Uh, now, no matter where you live, you can hop on the highway and go to the airport, go to work at a different part. So we're the first property right off the, the, the new extension there. So we saw that as a major catalyst if we were patient. Um, so here's what's happened since the new highway opened, Jeanette. Chick-fil-A came to our parking lot and decided to build a brand new restaurant. And if you know anything about Chick-fil-A, they awesome. do a lot of business with chickens and not on Sundays and they crush it, right? So right there, I think that's probably worth all the equity in, in the entire project, to be honest with you. Um, we danced with some national grocery stores for a little bit. We're very close at, at one point and Trader Joe's ended up opening directly across the street. Um, a new Planet Fitness opened down the street and I think a couple other grocery stores as well. So I started to think like, man, this is going to be a great opportunity to provide multifamily real estate here as well. Um, so we kind of looked at the real estate and said, is there an opportunity where we have some uh, retail that maybe is making, you know, 11 to 13 bucks a foot? Uh, but yet if we double down, could it, uh, you know, be repositioned in what we would say in the industry, higher and best use? Um, well, it turns out there's new mixed use zoning and it's an area that the city would love to see, see that happen. So. We now are talking with the city about how to demo part of the center and bring in a few hundred apartments. I mean, we're, we're talking as much as potentially 300 units. So it's it's pretty dramatic. And um, all in all, now, now you've got to, you know, if that can happen, you take this B minus asset, which has been an A earner, by the way. Um, and, and now you're really protecting yourself and, and your family for the future because, you know, there's only so many tenants that are going to fill up those retail spaces with the parking so far away. Um, so now we kind of, um, I guess we, we um, diminish our risk a little bit of, of, of retail because we don't think retail is going away. We just think it's changing. So maybe instead of owning 150,000 square feet of retail, now I'll own 50. Um, so we're not as tied to the retail risk. And now you bring in the apartments. Well, when you live in an apartment, you know, you may want to go shopping. You may want to eat, right? You may want to go to Chick-fil-A and then go to the gym, <laughs> maybe right after um maybe we bring a coffee shop in so we start to see those uses being symbiotic and kind of supporting each other the gym's going to do much better with 300 new families right and the people that rent there are going to want to live there because there's a really great gym in the parking lot so to me that's kind of common sense i'm surprised we we haven't seen as many of these kind of redevelopments as as you would think but um it's a lot easier to do it that way versus having the pressure of pitching a development if that were a ground-up development from day one I'd have to pitch my investors on, you know, what's going to be the interest rate on the construction loan? On the construction loan, is there a preferred return, and when do I start paying that? What if the interest rate goes up on the construction loan, right, from four to eight, which literally happened to us during another project we're involved in? Um, just a lot of moving pieces. I mean, I know you and I spoke a little bit. You felt development was something that was a whole other world, right? Um, it's challenging. We're, we're going through our, our first one, and. Um, I think if you have the existing cash flow there, you have a little bit more safety net to try some new things. And, you know, I always say I want to build a company where there's no fear of failure. We have to be willing to try things. Um, so that's that's the project. We're really excited about it. 
It sounds great. And it also sounds honestly um, a lot easier said than done. So I'm curious to know what are some of the challenges that you've been coming across as you're thinking about how to essentially reposition the asset um, when it comes to zoning. I know there can be a lot of complications surrounding that also. Uh, so just to kind of give you know any of our listeners some extra insight into how you make projects like this actually come to fruition, what would you say are you know kind of two or the top three surprising lessons you're gaining as going through this? Yeah, well, figuring out when you're going to start certainly is the biggest challenge. And I think that comes from a combination of, you know, lender's interest. Um, where are interest rates? Does the deal pencil at, you know, new interest rates that are 7% or 6% uh, for construction? What's going to be the final interest rate when you, you know, uh, go into your permanent loan? And, you know, will you go the HUD, the HUD route? Um, and, you know, this, this, the worry about supply chain, right? Like, We've gone through some times where, where we couldn't get certain electrical switch gear and it you know held us up by six months on other projects um could you imagine being in the middle of something and and you know your interest uh, payment is uh ten or twenty thousand dollars a day and now you're off six months on something i mean it could just be devastating um now the complication here also that adds a wrinkle is you've got to work with all the tenants right so that's been challenging trying to be uh, transparent with your t existing tenant saying, look, we're looking into other options. We don't know exactly what it's going to be. There's a few different ideas out there. Hard to tell you when exactly it could happen, but we're going to try to give you a, you know, a year's notice if we can. And we want to try to take care of you with our other family portfolios in the market. We can maybe relocate you um, or, or you know, help you find another location in a different family center. Um, so juggling all that certainly is, is a challenge. Um, but I'm not going to be shy about it. I'm not going to apologize. We're going to let people know it is our center and we do have a, an interest in doing something better for the community. And we want to try to be as helpful as we can to satisfy all the stakeholders. But we're not going to apologize that there's going to be some change and going to be some challenges because with that comes a great, great project for the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, now we we all need to be creative. We need to think outside of the box and we need to recognize that the status quo is no longer the status quo and we have to be agile and willing to, you know, pivot quickly in, you know, how we're going to continue to be successful, uh, you know, with our real estate investments, uh, whether it's development or, you know, existing multifamily. Uh, so interesting. Now, my last little tidbit, too, is uh, how, how far have you had to go through the zoning process? Do you have any advice for that? Because I know I've I've heard some nightmare stories about, you know, the challenges when it comes to zoning. So any advice you want to give on that? Wow. Put away a lot of money. <laughs> um, in North Carolina, it's looking, you know, at a whole different uh, level than New Jersey. New, New Jersey is a real challenge, to be honest with you. North Carolina is looking like it's not worth even discussing on the podcast. It's it's much friendlier, much more open for business. Um in New Jersey, we actually bought a piece of land, uh, I want to say June of 08, so just a few months before Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns went bad. Um, I hope some of the listeners were you know, still, still around at that time. <laughs> and um, we bought a property, it was, I don't know, seven acres in Hawthorne, New Jersey. And in our hand, we had a final deal with Kohl's department stores but they had uh, certain contingencies and, and kickouts, et cetera. So it wasn't really final, final, final. And that was a great learning lesson. We actually went to the town and were able to get the zoning updated to accommodate the retail overlay. And they were gonna build 100,000 square feet, uh, actually two story 
Jeanette. So 50,000 over 50,000. And um, it was going to be a great deal economically for the family. Uh, the, uh, Coles was going to, you know, build the building, not us as a ground lease. So we had to do some work on the land, but a really good return. Uh, I want to say maybe like a 10 cap, which would be a fantastic development return with, and Coles, you know, 15 years ago, really, really strong rated publicly traded company. Um, well, we got all the approvals and then economy fell out, right? The great recession of 08. And they said, Hey guys, you know, good luck. You're on your own. So we sat there and we're like, all right, what do we do next? Um, I think nothing happened for probably two years <laughs> and we owned it and we had to pay taxes on it. And I think we had a small mortgage on it at the time. And thank God we had a big portfolio of diverse investments to, uh, you know, stomach that those, those challenges. And, you know, we then were able to hook up with Walmart and Walmart was doing a new concept called their neighborhood market, which is I think a 40 or 50,000 square foot grocery store. Most people know about Walmart and the big 200,000 square foot boxes for their super centers. And they have a, I guess they have a horrible reputation uh, through lots of different Facebook groups about how they uh, leave their real estate if they ever close a store. So we were able to uh, get the zoning updated. Again, the town was interested in a grocery store and um, we were not able to disclose the name of the grocer and got all the approvals. And then a bunch of residents found out somehow that it was gonna be a Walmart and they got together kind of a small group uh, that uh, did not like Walmart and started passing around propaganda regarding you know what this would look like and what would happen in 20 years when Walmart left. And they were able to get money from an, a rival grocery store in the area to sue the town and sue us and go after the ordinances and the zoning. Yeah. And they poke, yeah, they poke some little holes. This doesn't happen, by the way, very much in multifamily, much more of a welcoming group, I've found. <laughs> but in retail, this happens a lot. Very competitive, and it's not nice. Um, so um, they were able to poke some holes. And Walmart said, look, guys, we're not going to hang around here for two years while you figure this out. You know, get it done now or we're out. And so they ended up walking away from us. So then we sat for another year or two trying to figure out what to do. And the state of New Jersey was putting out um, a number of programs and grants for something called transit-oriented development. So basically a site that's a quarter mile from the train uh, that could be used for mixed use and, you know, walkability, things like that in certain areas. Well, Hawthorne was not um kind of earmarked as a town in need of redevelopment uh but the train was a quarter mile from our site so i kind of said to the family let's just take the approach that we are a transit-oriented development forget about the actual grant money we're going to act as if um you know we're building the type of project everybody wants anyway and so we hooked up with a developer we had never built you know before and we pitched um 265 units plus or minus uh, a project called rivergate and it was going to have like just a little bit of retail and a little bit of uh, office. So we had to go to the Zoning Board of Adjustment for a year, let's say. Um, and at the end, the town said, no, we don't want it. So now we're like, oh, gosh, OK, so we couldn't do the Kohl's. We couldn't do the Walmart grocery. You don't want the housing. Do you really want a chemical plant again? I mean, what do you want? I got a piece of land. What are we going to do here? So at that point, we, we, we kind of put our heads together and said, um, the only way to get around this is going to be to start a lawsuit and a fight for what's called affordable housing in New Jersey. So I realize that, you know, your listeners may not be familiar with certain laws in every state, but in New Jersey, there's something called COA, which means each town has to provide, you know, affordable 
housing. And most of the towns, no secret, are really behind. And this is coming to a head. And um, basically, that is one of the ways that developers have been successful in saying, look, you have eight acres. Well, I can provide you 15 affordable units if you give me 100 market rate units. So it becomes a negotiation of back and forth. So we had a year or two of that. Finally, we had to get with a, a judge and a mediator and all that, and we were able to settle on an incredible project that we're so thrilled about. We're almost finished. Uh, Two-thirds of it's pretty much done, and the last building should be done by uh, mid-April, but it's called Hedges at Hawthorne, and it's our family's kind of new luxury brand uh, that is a very aspirational brand that's health and wellness oriented, and um, it's 118 luxury uh multifamily units in, in Hawthorne, walking distance to the New York City train, and fully amenitized, condo quality, on par with the nicest stuff you've ever seen in this area. Um, and it also has a 120,000 square foot uh, self-storage building, so four stories. That's going to be managed by CubeSmart. So the family owns it, but CubeSmart is the manager, similar to like Marriott being the hotel key, um, they get some type of royalty and it's their website, their phone number, but it is our, uh, our P&L. It's our asset. And then the last piece is 16,000 feet of retail, which was pre pre-leased to Planet Fitness. So they just opened in December, which is perfect timing, right? All those January New Year's resolution folks get into the gym. Um, and there'll be two small stores there, probably like smoothies, acai bowls, bagels, coffee for that kind of ridership who's going to the train. So you know, in the end, it's like a $65 million project. And it's going to be something that has an asset value way greater than what we ever thought compared to the Walmart or the Kohl's or whatever. We went uh, for about 13 years there, up and down, you know, peaks and valleys, we never gave up. Um, but what I've learned, I guess, to answer the question was, you should definitely wait to close on the land until you've got that zoning perfect, not appealable, no issues outside the appeal period and if you have a tenant that they've waived all their contingencies um because that was something that we were a little too aggressive on that deal you know Coles still had a little bit of movement had we closed and Coles was hard on, let's say what they say hard on the deal where they're non-refundable um it would have been a Coles. excellent so. i think it's a i think it's a very good story and a good lesson and uh, the major takeaways that I'm kind of getting from this, there's a handful of them, actually. So, you know, one of them is is just simply the need for being creative and thinking outside of the box and looking for ways to, you know, maximize your properties and your assets um, as creatively as you can. And I, I, you know, I give you a lot of kudos in, you know, having a lot of perseverance and continuing, you know, to figure out how to really maximize what your family had to work with, even though it definitely was not easy. So that leads kind of to my second takeaway that I'm picking up on, which is patient capital. Uh, you know, about a year and a half ago or so, I think Ellie wrote an article one time about patient capital. And it was interesting because it kicked off some comments and whatnot that, you know, some people had never actually heard of the term, uh, which surprised me. But, you know, it's something that's really important, especially when you're talking about building generational wealth. You want to understand that, you know, real estate investments are a long game. Um, so I, you know, I hear the story of patient capital, which right. I think is, is very important and pragmatic for people to keep in mind 
because especially after the heyday we just had, everybody wants huge returns and they want to move properties quickly and they you know want to grow their capital as fast as possible. But the reality is, is you know, it's not that easy, uh, you know, and it's, it doesn't always go that way. And then last, you know, but not least, what I hear too is how much more success you can create when you align the right partners into deals. Uh, for sure. So, you know, it's not only the success of your family, but it's having those right partners, those right retailers in place, the right tenants, um, you know, that also makes a really big difference. So I would say a lot of his strategy with probably a little splash of luck. Oh, a lot of luck. Definitely a lot of luck. We we have uh, 10 commandments somewhere in our office when you walk in and I don't, I forget the order they're in, but I know number one has always been, we treat our tenants like our customers. That's a philosophy that I think a lot of landlords, you know, don't do. Most landlords really don't care about their tenants. Um, we've always taken the approach that our tenants are like our customers, right? They're the lifeblood. If tenants don't want to open up in our shopping centers, no one's going shopping to see me and my family. Uh, we're not that interesting. But if Starbucks is there, they're going to come. Um, and so we, we know it all starts and ends at the tenant. Nothing happens with the tenant. Um, you renovate an apartment, you can't lease it to a tenant at a fair price to what they uh, can afford based on what they make at their job, you're not going to fill the apartment and hit your business plan. But one of the second things that's on that list is preservation of capital is more important than appreciation of capital because we know we've worked hard to build where we are. And there's some old kind of stories about called shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves where, you know, the first generation rolls up their shirt sleeves and they get dirty, you know, and the second generation gets to wear a polo shirt because they had it all lined up and then the third generation <laughs> has to start rolling up the shirt sleeves again because the second generation. So I'm third, I'm second in some of the businesses I'm first. I mean, I'm, I'm all three generations. Um, so we really appreciate that. And, you know, we try to explain to our investors, look, you know, we think it's going to take three years to do this. We think we're going to take five years to do this, whatever the specific strategy is. But I always try to find deals, Jeanette, that have some type of backup plan. Like what's the worst thing that would happen? You made 5% a year. Is that really bad? Like, does anyone ever get fired for making money? Um, I, I try to get involved with things. I'll, I'll give you another example, if you don't mind. We own a property in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And it is just in an area that is growing, high net worth area. And it's a bunch of mom and pops and Ollie's. Okay. And, you know, nobody gets so excited about Ollie's. But Ollie's is kind of a discounter, a closeout store but they do a great job, well-funded, well-run. And, you know, I mean, they have a fun selection of merchandise. You never know what you're going to find in there. It's a real adventure. But the problem with Ollie's is they only pay you like $5 a foot. They just don't pay rent. Like they, they don't pay big rent. They're known for that everywhere. They take second and third generation stores, right? You don't build a shopping center and bring in Ollie's. It doesn't pencil. So, you know, we looked at the shopping center and some people would say, well, you're never going to make any money. You got Ollie's. They've got five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And we looked at it and said, we have an incredible piece of real estate. We're going to make 10% on our money. And either Ali's is going to leave and we're going to triple the rent uh, or they're going to stay and we're going to get our paycheck, you know, our, our sorry, our rent check from Ali's because we know we can sleep at night and they'll have, like, they'll have increases year after year or five year mark, whatever it may be. Um, and you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be 15, 20%. And yeah, maybe it took a little longer. There was no major catalyst, but again, 20% return would be every year. Why would you ever sell? Um, so we try to look at things where either way we look at it as a success. And, you know, if you take that approach in business, I, I think you're going to end up doing really well and having a lot of repeat investors like, you know, you and Ellie do 
And, um, you know, you guys have built a fantastic business. So we're happy to, uh, to, to be friends and get to know you guys a little bit as well. Awesome. Well, excellent advice. And I appreciate the kind words also. Um, so before we wrap up, I actually have a fun little challenge that I spontaneously came up with this morning. Do it. So I've been listening to the Wall Street Journal lately, and there's been a lot of talk, I'm sure you've heard about it, about chat GPT, right? Wow. Have you heard about this? Yeah, I mean, I have. All right. So I thought it would be fun. Well, we're going to be very with the times. Um, I thought it would be fun for us to grade a chat GPT um, report, if you will. So this okay. morning, uh, my awesome intern, Sadu, I, I had him get into chat GPT for me because I have no idea how to get it. I don't know how to get it either. I've, I've heard of it. I'm excited about it. Don't ask me to download it. I'm going to fail. The whole thing kind of freaks me out, to be honest with you. So this is part of my reason for wanting to evaluate it. So we challenged chat GPT with the following. Write how to invest in real estate in today's economy in 50 words or less. Wow. All right. So I'm going to read you the answer. And then let's go ahead and let's give it a grade. Okay. Yeah. And for you listeners joining in today, uh, your thoughts are welcomed also. We want to know how you guys are grading it. Um, so let's see what it said. So the response, thanks to ChatGPT, is invest in real estate by researching the market, seeking expert advice, and diversifying portfolios by investing in both residential and commercial properties in different regions to spread risk. Consider a long-term investment strategy and carefully evaluate cash flow, expenses, and potential return on investment, ideally with Blue Lake Capital. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but prior to that, that is the answer it actually gave. And I thought it was, yeah, it was all right. You know, I think I'd give it a generous C plus, maybe, wow. is my opinion. Wow. What do you think? I, I would say B minus, um, and I would say the big thing that it's missing is if you're going to become a new real estate investor, the types of properties that Jeanette and Ellie are doing, that our family's doing, I mean, these are, I was just talking about this with my dad at lunch. We try to have lunch together every day. Um, these are big businesses, right? These are, each property is its own company. We've got revenue, we have expenses, we have debt, we have lenders, we have asset valuation, right? Um, we have covenants to hit. There, there's, a, there's a lot going on. So I would suggest, I would add to that paragraph, either like partner up with another company that's already doing it or start and get your feet wet with a passive investment, you know, with Blue Lake Capital or with our family or, you know, if you're an accredited investor, um, see if you like it, like understand what, what are the distributions look like? What does the um, depreciation look like? How does that affect your taxes? You know, uh, did you drive your accountant nuts because you invested in five deals and uh, how did that kind of change your your net worth? And, um, you know, did that help you get a new loan or or did that help you maybe uh, work less in your other jobs? So I, I would definitely add a layer of like you, you don't just jump in. I, I think some of the programs out there are overly aggressive that you just go and get started and like you go buy a, a place like the reality is, is you really need to listen to some podcasts, get to meet some people. But there's nothing better than investing with a trusted friend uh, or colleague who's you know, an expert in the market. Uh, and just, you know, even if it's a small starter investment, it's really the best way to get your feet wet, in my opinion. I think that's great. Uh, great perspective. Definitely. Uh, one of the things that I thought, you know, that was really important is it really didn't reference uh, tenants, tenants at all. It didn't even mention tenants. Right. So, you know, the fact that that, you know, critical component of owning real estate with no tenants, potentially, or any tenant evaluation, 
um, I just thought was one, you know, definite lacking uh, point that it should have had. In fairness, I did only allow it 50 words. Um, but, you know, and the other, you know, kind of along the same lines of what you were saying, I think, um, and I've heard other guests say this on the show before, one of the biggest mistakes is not recognizing that essentially your investments are business and you need to run them as such. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. I, I just think that's some of the best advice I've ever heard also. Uh, that's really important for people to understand. And, and you know, I definitely don't think ChatGPT um, happened to kind of mention the emphasis on the importance. Absolutely. Of so Jeanette, does that mean we're not going to do the lightning round? Because I had a book, I had a book <laughs> ready for you to recommend and everything. I've been listening to your podcast to get ready. It would not be as fun without the lightning round. All okay. right. So are you ready for uh, ready. lightning round questions? I want to hear the music, though. Where's that drum roll? Where's the Jeopardy? <laughs> I know. I'll have to uh, ask our producer to pop one in. You have a producer, Jeanette. Okay. You could definitely have a producer for the lightning round. <laughs> Tell Ellie it's in the budget. Uh, yes. I'll let her know that you said so. Okay. <laughs> All right, ready. So first and foremost, uh, aside of everything else that you do, which really one day we have to have another uh, episode just because I want to know how you got to hair salons also. I, I just know. didn't it's too much time today. But what do you actually do for fun? What's a hobby? Great question. So I love staying active and healthy. Like I was up early and ran three miles today. So I just love living a healthy lifestyle. Um, but if it's football season, I love those New York Giants. You can see some of the Super Bowls in the back and uh, just very passionate about following the whole NFL and, and rooting on the Giants. Well, I can definitely see how that ties into your previous career uh, decisions that you've made for sure. Um, all right, nice. Now, uh, what is something that most people don't know about you? Wow, um, great question. I am recently, past couple of years, I joined a, a wonderful charity board. I'm on the board of, uh, it's called the Jewish Home in Rockland, New Jersey. It's a senior Kind of nursing home assisted living facility um and so i've always had like a love and respect for my grandparents and so that was something that i was asked to one of my investors get involved and i really enjoyed it um and so i would say well, i think what people don't know is that how involved i am i'm on like eight different committees now and you know on the executive committee and and, and the treasurer and really jumped in two feet in and uh, learning the whole business and just love the idea of kind of um you know, taking care of the people that came before us. That's fantastic. I, I definitely love that. And I'm a, I'm a huge believer in uh, community service. I have a very extensive background in that as well. And I think a life well lived is one shared with others for sure. I like it. Uh, so I think it's great you're doing that. Now, the next question I know you're already prepared for. So what is a book that you have read recently or that you would recommend investors really need to make sure they include? Okay, so I'm going to give a plug to a friend of mine because I went to a two-hour um, kind of workshop with him this morning. My friend Scott White from the YPO group that I'm in. It's called Life is Too Short Guy. The Life is Too Short Guy. Strategies to make every day the best day ever. And it just talks a lot about um, how you start your day in terms of being gratitude, you know, having gratitude, having an attitude of gratitude, um, getting out of bed, you know, and doing things with purpose writing down your, your, your goals and what you accomplish and understanding, um, you know, the kind of person you want to be in life and, you know, little things like checking in on friends with a personal note that maybe you haven't talked to in a while, a handwritten note. Um, and so I really recommend everybody dive into this book because everybody gives you an answer about business books, real estate books. I want to give you something that's more on uh, personal kind of development and health and wellness. Um, cause as you know, health is wealth. 
Absolutely. Well, I think that's great. Um, I actually have a, a, a picture that hangs up in my house. It's a beautiful wooden carved uh, picture. And it says very simply, choose happy. And I look at it every day and uh, do my best to really embrace that and love that. So I, I think my, my wife has like a 30 um, coffee mugs with little slogans on that. They're great reminders, you know, it's hysterical. <laughs> Absolutely. They, they definitely are. All right. Now I have two more questions for you. So this one is a big one. So kind of along those same lines, what would be your advice to people in being able to build and live an extraordinary life? Hmm. Um, I would say start, start, you know, with a passion. Think about what, what really makes you happy. I, I think a lot of people live other people's lives. Um, whether they, you know, trade time, their time for money, um, or they kind of follow in someone else's dreams. And I think, you know, don't be afraid to follow your passions. Now that doesn't mean you quit your job and, you know, move to Montana to ride horses. If, if that doesn't pay the bills, then slowly you would have to, you know, research horses. You'd have to go to some different conferences. You'd have to maybe apprentice, work for free a little bit on the side nights and weekends. But find things that make you passion, uh, that, that provide you passion, and then don't ever apologize for that and, and, and keep at it um, and, and let it simmer and let it grow. And, and as it slowly replaces, whether it's your income or you're retired, whatever it is, let it, you know, let it develop and grow over time. It's not, it's not black or white. Like the, the world is, we live in is a gray area, I always say. Um, so that, that would be my advice. Excellent advice. All right. Now, Garrett, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? Awesome. So I'm always available on LinkedIn. Um, I also do a lot of posting on Instagram. You can look up Garrett Graham. So it's a G-A-R-R-E-T and then G-R-A-M. And I have a YouTube channel called Get Up With Garrett, where I've been blessed to have Ellie and other wonderful entrepreneurs, real estate investors, friends, you know, people that own their own business come on and kind of share great secrets to success. So that's available. Um, you can certainly post my email address later in the show notes. Um, love meeting and engaging with, with new people and new friends. Shoot me a note. Um, subscribe to my podcast. <laughs> always helps, I guess, right? They always say, give me the thumbs up. That's right. Um, yep. And, and that's it. All right. Great. Well, Garrett, this has been, uh, I think, inspiring, uh, you know, really inspiring, really informative. Uh, and I hope that everyone else joining us today is equally uh, inspired and starting to think a little bit more creatively. Um, make sure that you guys like, rate, and review the show. If you'd like to learn more about investing with us, be sure to go to bluelake-capital.com. And don't forget to include in the comments your grade for the chat GPT. And until next week, we'll see you guys then. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.